0: Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let me pray for us. Father, praise your name for the opportunity to study your word. Lord, we thank you that you've given us truth. You've given us a path forward in our lives, a way by which we can make wise choices that honor you and are good for us. Thank you for your goodness in our lives, for the blessings that you've provided for us. Father, I pray that as we now turn to your word, we would continue with a mindset of worship, Lord. Continue with a mindset of, of understanding and, and being aware of your presence. Just speak to us very clearly through your truth. May we apply it to our lives and be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We are continuing our study this morning and our sermon series that we've entitled Sent. And even though we're kind of winding this down in the next couple of weeks, we'll finish this thing up. I'm I'm really more and more excited about this because I'm more and more amazed as I continue to study this and try to better understand it. I'm more amazed at all the different times the Lord specifically says, I am sending you to accomplish certain things all through Scripture. We serve a sending God. I've said that over and over. And the the idea that comes with being uh, sent is that there is intentionality, there is purpose. It's not just some random event that the Lord just kind of threw together at the last minute. God had a plan from eternity past for your life. You're now here on this earth and he's calling you and sending you to accomplish great things for him, And so we've asked the question every week as we've started every sermon, we've asked this question, what is God sending you to do? We've looked at a number of different examples in Scripture. We've looked at a number of different personalities in Scripture and ways in which the Lord has used people to accomplish His purposes. And we've come up with an acronym. I think we have that on the screen as well for you. The the only reason I give this to you is to help you remember some of the things we've already talked about. sent, spirit-empowered, evangelistic, no limits. And then last week we added the T, total obedience. God is calling you to accomplish great things for Him, and He desires your obedience. He desires you to understand your calling to understand your purpose. He desires you to trust Him and to seek Him and to hear from Him. He is sending you to do great things. Now, the greatest example of being sent in Scripture is, of course, Christ. And so we started with Christ in the book of John several weeks ago. We keep going back and speaking of Christ and reminding ourselves of what Christ has accomplished. But last week, we moved into John 17. Because John 17 is the point in the life of Christ when he's winding up his ministry, he's got little time left, he wants to spend it with his disciples, he wants to teach them and train them and pray for them and remind them that not only has he been sent, but he's now sending them. And so we started last week in John 17 with the first five verses, And we gave three very simple truths. We said that Jesus was sent with authority over all things, that Jesus was sent to glorify the Father, and that Jesus was sent to accomplish the Father's will. Now, with that in mind, with the the sentness of Christ, the high priestly prayer, with everything that Christ wants to accomplish, and again, just reminding you, because I don't want this to become, oh, this is about Jesus, it's not really about me. Christ kind of makes that connection for us As the Father sent him, so he sends us. And so we can say with certainty that the things that Christ was sent to accomplish, we're also sent to accomplish. And so we're going to continue our study this morning in John 17, beginning of verse 6. We're going to look at the truth of God's word and try to understand exactly what Christ was sent to do. And then, as important, apply what that means to our lives, live out our calling for the Lord. Okay, so John 17 verse 6, the words of Christ, praying to God the Father about his disciples. I have revealed you, he's speaking to God the Father, to those whom you gave me out of this world. They were yours, you gave them to me, they have obeyed your word." Now they know that everything I have given, you have given me, comes from you. He's speaking to the Father, God the Father. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you, here it is, sent me. Right? We see it again, time and time and time again. Now, there's a lot of things you could say about this text. But I want to pull out one truth that Christ gives these followers as he prays to God the Father. A reason that he's sent and for the same reason we're sent. Here's truth number one. Jesus was sent to reveal the name of the Lord. Now I just want to be clear, Jesus was sent for a lot of things. There's a lot of things that Christ accomplished on this earth. There's a lot of things that Christ accomplished in his ministry. So when we list these things out last week and this week, we're not saying that's all he was sent to do, but these are some of the important things that the Father sent him to accomplish that, remember, he sent us because he was sent to accomplish these things. We should apply that same logic to our lives. We should try to accomplish the same things. So Christ, he says in his prayer, was sent to reveal the name of the Lord. Pull verse 6 back up for me if you would, please, one. I want you to look very clearly at how Christ begins verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Christ says, I've revealed, I've demonstrated, I think the King James says manifested. The idea is I have shown these people your name. I've demonstrated to them who you are. I've revealed your truth to them. Now, just a little side note. You can pull point one back up again just for a second, if you would, please. Just a side note. How often are we revealing the name of the Lord to the people that live around us? It's a fair question if Christ kind of gave his life and his ministry to reveal the name of the Father and to teach and to train, and we're going to see that here in just a minute, if that was his calling and he gave his life for that, if God the Father sent him to accomplish that, maybe he's sending us to do the same sorts of things. So you should ask yourself this question on a pretty regular basis. Did I reveal the name of the Lord today to anybody that was around me? My fear is if we watched many believers in their day-to-day life, they may never reveal the name of the Lord to anybody. In fact, if we were honest, there may be moments in our lives when we reveal something other than the name of the Lord. Christ says, my my calling, the reason I have been sent is to reveal your name to these people. But he takes it a step farther. It's interesting. It's more than just saying the name. It's more than just revealing the name. There's a depth here. Look at verse 7, if you would pull that up for me, please. Christ is going to use some words in verses 7 and 8 that demonstrate to us that not only did he reveal the name of the Lord to these men, but he trained them in such a way that they listened and learned and obeyed his calling. Look at verse 7. Now they know, right? There's no doubt. There's no confusion. They know that everything you have given me comes from you. Verse 8. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them, right? They didn't deny them or turn them away. They accepted them. Then they knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. You see the understanding there? It's not that Jesus just said, "Uh, God the Father, and that's all he did. Just kind of said the name. He said, this is who God the Father is, this is what he commands you to do, this is how he would have you live, you should believe these things with certainty and accept them and live your life in such a manner. It's real easy as believers, and and I'm guilty of this just like you are, it's real easy as believers just to kind of be superficial in our faith." and justify some things, you know, like we go to church or we pray sometimes or we we make good decisions occasionally. It's easy for us to justify the other things because we're doing a few good things. Christ says these men have believed and accepted and they're certain and they're living their life now for the sake of the gospel. Now you would expect if this was kind of one of the pillars in which Christ built his ministry to teach these men... And to train these men. If he was sent to reveal the name of the Father and to train and teach these men. And then he says, I'm now sending you believer to do the same thing. You would expect then that he would at some point command his followers to do the same thing, wouldn't you? Well, he does. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. I think we have that on the screen. Listen to the words of Christ. Just before he ascends, known to many of us as the Great Commission. Listen to the words of Christ. With the idea of John 17, now he's been teaching, he's been training, he's been praying, he's sent to equip them so they're certain, so they believe, so they live their life for the Father. Here's what Jesus says. Speaking to his followers just before he ascends into heaven. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Therefore, go and what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20. And what? Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now in the world we live in, and kind of the the church setting we live in, we call this discipleship. So let's just use words we understand with the sentness of Christ and what he accomplished. Christ, very simply, discipled his followers. He revealed the name of the Lord so they were certain about who that was, so they acknowledged, they believed, they lived their lives. He discipled his followers. He calls us and tells us we are sent to do the same. We are commanded to go and make disciples. We have been sent to make disciples. And so as we think about proclaiming the name of the Lord... And wondering who around us knows that we're believers, we kind of take a step beyond that and we ask ourselves even a more difficult question Who are we discipling in our lives? If Christ discipled and he trained and he taught and he was sent to reveal the name of the Father to his disciples, he sends us to do the same thing he commands us to do it in Matthew 28 19 and 20. Who are we discipling? We should be actively in our faith. If you've been a believer more than just a few years, because if, if you've been a Christian less than a year, I may not be talking to you, although I think young believers can still disciple. But if you've been a believer 5, 10, 15, 20 plus years, you should be discipling people. You should basically say, I'm willing to set aside a certain point in my life, a certain day or an hour or whatever it looks like, a week or a couple of times a month, and I'm going to meet with this person that I know needs to grow in their faith, and I'm, I'm going to teach them. Bring up Matthew twenty-eight twenty. one more time for me, please. I'm going to meet with this person. I'm going to teach them to obey everything the Lord has commanded. That's kind of the point of discipleship. Who are we discipling? Christ says, I've been sent to do this. I've dedicated my ministry and my life to it. I'm going to pray for these men that surround me now so that they can go and disciple and train others. Now, I speak a lot about this. This is something that's kind of important to me personally, and I hope it's important to you. I talk a lot about the idea of discipleship within the home. And I just like every opportunity I get to remind you and encourage you, it's the responsibility of the parents within the home to disciple their children. We do baby dedications here. We do them a little bit differently than we used to. We now set aside an afternoon. We have a nice luncheon. And we have a lot of babies we dedicate. So we'll do a a baby dedication every few months. And we'll dedicate five or six babies. We had one last Sunday. Five or six babies we dedicated. And it's neat because we invite the families to come. We serve them lunch We spend some time looking at pictures. They read a a kind of a parent covenant. We bring the family up and have prayers. It's just a fantastic opportunity to pray for these families and these children. But at the heart of that idea is this truth in Deuteronomy 6, which is what we base this on, and all through the Old and New Testament. At the heart of the baby dedication and, and within the home is this idea that it's the parent's responsibility. It's the parent's job to train. It's the parent's job to equip and to teach And to lead Christ says, I've been sent to train and disciple I'm commanding you to do the same thing who are we discipling now let's continue verse 9 Jesus says I pray for them I'm not praying for the world but for those you have given me for they are yours now he's not praying for everybody he's praying for his followers not praying for the world yet he gets there just in a few in a few minutes all I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name you gave me so that they may, so that they may be one as we are one. Verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them, kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. He's speaking of Judas there in verse 12. Here's truth number two. Jesus was not just sent to proclaim and train and disciple, but number two, Jesus was sent to bring unity. Jesus was sent to bring unity. Now, Jesus understands as he prays for these followers that the world he's about to leave them with is not going to be easy. He understands that when he is crucified three days later, when he he rises from the dead, raises from the dead, when he ascends into heaven, he understands that the world he's going to leave them with is going to be difficult. It's not going to be easy. And so he prays for protection. Look at verse 11. Pull that up if you would for me, please. He's very clear in what's about to happen right here. I'm I'm, I will remain in the world no longer, but they're still in the world, and I'm coming to you, speaking to the, to the Father. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Leave that up just for a second, right? He understands the difficulty of what's going to happen when he leaves. He understands the world they're going to live in. He understands they're going to need protection from the power of the Lord. And he prays all those things so that they can be what? Unified. He says it right at the end. So that they may be one as we are one. Now there's there's a lot we could say about the idea of unity. In fact, we see it all through the New Testament. We see it in Ephesians. We see it in John. We see it in some of the writings of Paul. We see all these instances where we're commanded scripturally to be in unity with one another. Now, I've talked about this a lot, and the sermon is really not about this idea, but I think it's fair when we talk about unity just to remind you of this truth. We have this mindset oftentimes as believers that we as a local body of believers should be unified with one another, and that's absolutely true. We should be. There should be complete unity within this body of believers. We should be on the same page. We should have the same vision. We literally should be be walking arm in arm toward the same destination. That's the unity that we find within the local body of Christ. That's the unity we should find. But here's what a lot of people do that I think is unbiblical. And maybe we don't say this or even understand it quite like I'm going to say it. But I think we find far too often that people get concerned about their church and their walls. And they forget that there are thousands of other believers in Troop County that are trying to do the same thing you're doing. You understand that? There are people in other churches that are maybe not meeting at 9.30, but going to meet at 11. All across this community, all across this state, all across this country. And they're trying to do the same thing you're doing. And so I just think anytime we get this chance to be reminded of this, we, we, we we should just remember the words of Christ here. He's not just praying about Rosemont. He's praying about the body of Christ. And so I I just I continue to just kind of dream this dream of what if all these believers, if we kind of just realize that yeah we're gonna we're gonna do the things we're supposed to do in Rosemont because God's called us to this local fellowship, but what if we partnered with these other believers? What if we partnered with these other churches? What if we really did take this idea of unity and we're going to be one as they are one seriously and we try to figure out what can we do as a body of believers of Troop County or of Georgia or of the United States? What can we do in unity to reach people for Christ? One writer explained it like this as he's thinking about this unity of the church. He says this unity is not a matter of being friendly. Having fellowship after church, being on a committee or working on projects together. It's something far deeper. He goes on to say our unity is based on the redemption of Christ. It's different. It's different than just having some common background or history or sharing some funny stories together. We base our unity on the redemption and the resurrection of Christ. And so here's what that means. It means that we can be unified not only with believers in our church, not only with believers in our county, but with believers all over the world. We have a team that's going to be landing here in, I don't know, seven hours. They're literally in the air right now flying back from South Asia. They had a layover in Europe and they're coming back. They'll land about 5 or 6 o'clock tonight. And if you've ever had the chance to go overseas and to do mission work and worship with other people, it's always fascinating to me because I, I walk into a worship service in South Asia and I'm confronted with this truth that they don't speak my language. They don't share anything about my culture. They don't share my history. They don't wear the same clothes that I wear. They don't eat the same foods that I eat. I have zero in common with them other than the fact that they're a human being like I am. That's it. And yet I'm able to walk up to those men and those women and put my arms around them and love them in the name of Christ. Why? Because we have unity and a commitment to the redemption and the resurrection of Christ. But Jesus understands very clearly that that unity is going to be hard. He understands it's not going to come easy. He understands that people oftentimes are going to be divided. And so he prays very simply that through the power of the Lord, they would remain unified. I thought it was just interesting. In the week we've been through, that this idea of unity came up in John 17. I thought that was kind of cool. Because I think if we were to be honest with one another, a word we would probably not use for our country right now is unified. There are great differences and we all understand that. And this is not a sermon about politics or the election or any of those things, but it is a sermon about this truth. If we ever want to experience real unity within our country, it's only going to come in the name of Christ. You understand that? I have a firm belief, and and I'll be happy to meet with you and kind of lay out the facts at any point you want to see this, but I believe our country was founded on Christian values, Christian principles, uh, by Christian people that understood the Word of God, understood what he was trying to accomplish in his Word, and I think really the the farther we get away from that Christian heritage and that Christian background, the more division we're going to see in this in America. We see it now, but I'm reminded of Scripture, and I'm reminded of the words of Paul. I was reading Ephesians earlier in the week, and you don't have to... Look it up. Do we have Ephesians 2, 14 through 22? Did I give you that one? Perfect. Paul is writing in Ephesians and, and one of the big uh, ideas that he talks about, one of the big uh, things he mentions in Ephesians is this idea of unity. And he's speaking at this moment in, in Ephesians to the Jews and the Gentiles, two vastly different groups of people that oftentimes couldn't find common ground, that disagreed. It really does remind me a lot of what we see in our country right now. And he makes this, this fascinating argument in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. He's going to speak of the two different groups. I want you to listen to the words of Paul. For he himself is our peace. Who has made the two groups, right? That's Jews and Gentiles. But you can kind of fill in the blank there. Two groups, one... And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in him one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Verse 16, And in one body to reconcile both of them, right? That's the two groups. He's going to reconcile the two groups to God, how? Through the cross. You understand that? By which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, Peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone in him. The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Jesus, But Paul says, listen, if there's ever going to be real unity in our world, it's going to be built on the foundation of Christ and his principles and all he's accomplished for us. Had the opportunity this morning to speak to a school teacher and she's in here I'm not gonna call out who she is she'll know the story before the service she was telling me a story about one of her students and one of the struggles she has with one of her students and how this this student has been kind of difficult for a while and I, I know you teachers so many teachers can relate right difficult students hard situations and she was just dealing with a student and didn't quite know what to do and she said several weeks ago she just felt the need to start praying for this student so she said, you know, I just, I just started praying for this student and, and praying for this student's home. And she said, I started going to the student every time I saw this student and bending down, hugging this student's neck and telling the student, I love you and I'm praying for you. She said, you would not believe the difference in the life of this student over the last several weeks. Why? Because in Christ, there's hope. In Christ, things can change. And Christ, as we build upon the foundation of all he accomplished and all he gave us on the cross, as we build upon that foundation, there is hope, there is peace, there is unity. People can come together in the name of Christ for him to accomplish great things. But here's the problem, James 4, two. Listen to this problem. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. See, we get caught up in our own desires and in our own thoughts and in our own needs and wants. And we forget the calling of Christ in our life. We forget that we've been called with a singular purpose as a body of believers. When we get caught up in our own stuff and what we want to do in our own desires, we have war within us, we battle within us, we don't find unity. But Christ says, I'm going to pray for my followers I'm going to pray that they would have a power in the midst of difficult situations to find peace and to find unity. Now let's continue. Verse 13, as we wind down this morning. Christ still praying to God the Father, I'm coming to you now, right? Again, there's the clear indication of what's about to happen. But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them here's truth number three Jesus was sent to bring joy Jesus was sent to bring joy now let's place ourselves in in kind of the mindset of Christ just for a few minutes I I talk about this a lot but as we read scripture we should as best we possibly can put ourselves into this context and let's remember what Christ was about to go through Right? Jesus had explained to his followers, he'd explained to his disciples on multiple different occasions that his calling in life, his calling on this earth, wasn't simply to do miracles, wasn't simply to walk on water, it wasn't to, to simply feed thousands or to do all the things he did. That was part of his ministry. But his ultimate calling was to walk to the cross. And so he explained to them very simply on several different occasions. For example, Luke 18, verse 31. I want you to listen to what he says in verse 31. Jesus took the 12 aside and he told them, right? The disciples sometimes missed it. Sometimes they didn't quite understand it. So Jesus was about as clear as he could be with them. He says to his followers, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled he here's the clarity he will be delivered over the gentiles they will mock him insult him spit on him they will flog him and kill him and on the third day he will rise again so just understand Jesus when when he prays this in John 17 understands he's within just a few days of his death He understands he's willingly walking to the cross. He's willingly giving his life. He's literally going to be beaten and tortured and have to endure one of the most brutal executions really in history. And yet he makes this stupid, Startling statement at the end of verse 13 pull it up again because I just want you to see it with your own eyes He's praying i'm coming to you now father, right? I know what i'm going through I know the difficulties of life I know what i'm about to endure, but I say these things while i'm still here in other words I've got one last chance father I'm going to endure the cross. I've got one last chance, but i'm saying this so that They may have the full measure of what my joy within them How is it that a man that is literally walking to his execution can find that kind of joy? How is it that a man that's going to endure all he was going to endure find joy? It's an interesting question because I think oftentimes as believers, we allow the small things in our life to steal our joy, don't we? And maybe you've come this morning Maybe you brought with you this morning into this worship service some baggage that you're dealing with, some issues that you're dealing with, some things that are stealing your joy that aren't allowing you to find peace and hope in Christ. Let me just just remind you that if you trust in the Lord, if you walk with Christ... He doesn't always fix the circumstances around you like maybe you would like him to fix. But in the middle of that difficult walk, he gives you hope and peace and joy beyond anything the world can offer. You know, Isaiah 53 paints just a real clear picture of who Christ was and what he was going to accomplish and what he was going to go through. If you've never read Isaiah 53, you ought to read it. Written 700 years before the, 700 years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah 53 lays out in very clear words exactly what Jesus was going to endure. And Isaiah 53:3, speaking of Christ, says, "He was despised and rejected a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces; he was despised and we held him in low esteem." This was a man that was rejected, mocked, beaten, crucified. How did he find joy? Two verses I want you to read that will help you understand. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. I think we have that as well. Put verse 2 up. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of of our faith. There's that word again. For the joy set before him. right? So the cross is literally laid out before him. This is the path he has to take. God the Father says, I'm setting this before you. The joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. Psalm 40, verse 8 kind of brings some of this in perspective. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. Right Here's why Christ found joy. Christ found joy because he understood trusting the father and giving his life to the father and obeying the father even until death was worth anything he would have to endure and he understood that it was through that process it was through that path that he would find real joy far too many of us look for joy and happiness in the things of the world, thinking we can just get more stuff and do more things of the world and kind of fall into that trap, we'll be happier in crisis. You know, there's only one real path to joy. It's through a relationship with me and trusting me and being willing to obey regardless of the cost. Oswald Chambers, who wrote my utmost for his highest, many of you have read that devotion over the years. Here's what he says. What was the joy that Jesus had? Joy should not be confused with happiness. In fact, it's an insult to Jesus Christ to use the word happiness in connection with him. The joy of Jesus was his absolute self-surrender and self-sacrifice to his father. The joy of doing that which the father sent him to do. See folks, I just want to be very clear with you as I finish this up this morning. There, there are kind of two paths in this life, and, and maybe I should say it this way, the older I get, the clearer they become to me. Many of you would say the same thing. There, there's a path of the world, and that can mean a lot of different things, or there's a path of righteousness in Christ. And we buy into this lie far too many times that the righteousness or the, or the, the, the joy that we seek or the, the happiness we want to find or the hope that we, we look for is found in the things of the world. And so we kind of pursue that path. But you and me and so many others could, could name so many examples of people that have walked down this path and walked down this path only to find it's a dead end. Instead what we see is the other path. It's narrow. It's not as easy not as popular it can be difficult it can mean harsh things it can mean that you're rejected and despised but it's a path of righteousness that Christ has called us to walk and as we walk down that path we find hope and we find joy and we find peace and so I just want to encourage you this morning with those two choices you, you've got a choice choose Christ or choose the world But God has got a plan for you. He wants to use you. He wants to give you joy and hope. He wants you to follow him and trust him. He's got a calling for your life. And so I'll finish with the question I finish with every Sunday morning. You need to answer this question. What's God sending you to do? Let's pray. Father, your word is again very clear. Lord, we know that you, were, you sent Christ to this earth to accomplish great things. You sent him to reveal your name, Lord. You sent him to bring unity. You sent him to bring joy. May we do the same thing, Lord. May we understand our calling and our sentness. May you give us the the power and the strength to proclaim the name of Christ, to disciple, to train, to teach people to obey. Father, give us the ability to bring unity in our love for Christ. Father, allow us to, to, to share joy with those that are around us. And Father, as we are sent out in the world, you give us the strength to accomplish great things for you, Father. We don't think we can do it. We don't think we have the power. But Lord, as you work through us, as the Holy Spirit empowers us to do this, we can accomplish all things. We can accomplish all things through you. Give us the ability to seek you, to trust you, use us to do great things for your honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand. The invitation, again, is for you to respond. You come, you sing, you pray, however the Lord leads you. This is your opportunity to respond.